Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How does climate change connect with voting, education, and other civil rights? Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded with a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton. What comes to mind when you think of global warming? A polar bear or maybe a melting glacier? If you're Hispanic or African-American, you might think of a child with asthma worsened by a coal plant near your home. When you do polling, you actually see that people of color poll the highest on the need to address climate change and address it quickly. Ingrid Brostrom is assistant director of the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, an advocacy organization. People of color often live closest to the large sources of carbon pollution that are hurting their personal health and the health of the planet. But they often feel left out of the conversation. You come to tell us things. You don't come to to ask us how we're organizing or what we want to do or what we want to see and what we want the future to be. Mandolin Wind Ludlum, better known by her stage name Mystic, is an American hip-hop artist and activist. She works on voter registration and engagement, often at a hyper-local level, to counter the frustration felt in communities of color. Of course, there are other reasons why getting those communities more involved in climate action can be a challenge. When you've got police brutality, when you've got rent, when you've got poor education, when you've got unemployment, those issues that are very bread and butter issues, it's not a matter of people are not concerned about the environment. Reverend Gerald Durley is pastor emeritus at Providence Missionary Baptist Church in Atlanta. He's also on the board of Interfaith Power and Light, a religious response to climate change. Reverend Durley worked alongside Dr. Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement. He was at the National Mall in 1963 when Dr. King gave his famous speech. I began our conversation by asking him what he saw as the connection between climate change and civil rights. In 1963, that was my senior year in college, and we were concerned about the civil and human rights of all individuals. And we, we fought a good fight, I thought, and then 50-something years later, it's still the civil and human rights that everyone should have the right to clean air, toxic-free water, and, and these kinds of efforts. So we see the analogous between what we were fighting for then and what we've got to fight for now. It is a right of everybody that we have access to these kinds of uh, areas. So we see it now, and particularly in the faith community, where we're beginning to now organize around this And if we can organize by bringing people to another level of awareness, then we can move to the strategy session. That's the foundation of any movement. 
Mystic, you uh, grew up with a, a mo mother who's an environmental advocate and activist. You, and how did you come to this? I kind of, I guess you couldn't escape it because you grew up with it, coming to the climate connection. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with my mother here for a long time in San Francisco. She was an activist and an advocate, worked with farm workers in the Central Valley in the 80s. She worked with folks um, coming from Nicaragua and Guatemala around asylum. So she was just like always dedicated to people and the world and the environment. And as time has progressed, as we have learned more knowledge, as we have gained more facts about what climate change means, not only around the world, but in the communities that are most impacted, which are traditionally more impoverished and are traditionally folks of color, that... Um, you know, I can't escape getting that information shared with me. It can be as simple as if I had an air freshener in my house that she would explain to me what the toxins were. She would explain to me that I should go buy one where I can put my own essential oils on them. And therefore, it's, it's healthier for my house and, and healthier for me. So it was kind of there and something that I was interested in. But when I began working with the Hip Hop Caucus, which is a national and growing international human rights and civil rights and social justice organization started by Reverend Lennox Yearwood um, over 10 years ago, climate change was always part of the platform in terms of connecting it to civil rights and to human rights and to social justice. And so to have the opportunity to travel to other places you know, has pushed me in that direction. And as somebody who really, I know it can be a kind of flag world to say global citizen, but as somebody who, who works with children and loves children all around the world, to know that millions of children are being impacted by climate change and will continue to be so, that's what drives me to advocate in this area. Thank you. Ingrid Brostrom, uh, there's a perception that the you know, environmental people who care about our climate change are coastal, Caucasian, et cetera. So tell us what your organization is trying to, to address that hasn't been addressed by sort of broader environmental groups, bigger environmental groups. Yeah, and, and I think that perception is actually very wrong. Um, when you do polling, you actually see that people of color poll the highest mm -hmm. on, on the need to address climate change and address it quickly. And, and it makes sense because um, certain communities are impacted uh, by the same toxic facilities that are causing uh, global warming and climate change. And so, you know, we're working directly with communities in California's Central Valley. Um, it's a lot of farm working communities. It's impacted by um, pesticide applications. It's, it's impacted by fracking operations, refineries. Uh, of course, uh, all of the, the, the biggest freeways and uh, go right through the Central Valley. And so um, they're inundated with both local pollutants um, from all these facilities and sources as well as uh, carbon. Um, and so they are getting the double whammy of, of being physically impacted by the local pollution, but they're also going to be impacted first and worst by climate, and they're going to be less resilient. They're going to have less um, money to leave the area. They're going to have less money for air conditioning and, and other, other ways that other communities can be more resilient. We're seeing that certain communities are necessarily going to be more impacted, and they have the least resources to deal with those impacts. Jose Garola is the 23-year-old mayor of Arvin, an agricultural town in California's Central Valley. And that town suffers from some of the poorest air in the country. In 2007, the EPA noted the community had some of the highest levels of smog pollution in the United States. Let's listen to the mayor. 
Harbin is a small agricultural community population, just over 21,000, uh, about 95% Hispanic, and the rest divided between Muslim American population, African Americans, and Caucasians. Um, Low-income community, uh, we passed a resolution in support of um, the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, I believe we're the only city in the county and possibly in the, in, in the Central Valley to do so. In my first term, there was a pipeline leak that was leaking gas, and uh, about 20 of my neighbors on my street were evacuated for more than eight months because this contamination was in the soil, it was in their homes, and during that time, I tried to adopt a, a temporary moratorium on all oil and gas operations, which included fracking. If this happened in an affluent area in Bakersfield, it would be making the front page of the newspaper every day. But it wasn't. And a large percentage of the people living within one mile of a fracking well are people of color. You know, these things are structural and institutional. It's, it's environmental racism. I am fully aware that I'm trying to operate in a system that was meant to keep my community oppressed and keeping people from participating in local government as well. I've decided to speak out rather than just, you know, as a 24-year-old, just I can just keep quiet and, and play nice. That's Jose Garola, the mayor, mayor of Arvin, California. Reverend Durley, do you think that there's intention to keep people down that you agree with? He's some pretty strong things there that it's intentional oppression by where fossil fuel and the way the, the our economy works to, to provide energy. First of all, I was so pleased to hear from the mayor at that age group. We used mm -hmm. to talk about passing the torch on and what do we say to our young people? And I'm convinced the torch is never passed on. You take the torch mm -hmm. and you move ahead. Mm -hmm. No one passes it because we like power. We like to have privileged positions. And in a capitalist society, it's about the money. We always say follow the dollar. So consequently, it is a, is it, he used the term environmental racism. And we look at the toxic waste dumps and fracking in the middle Midwest. But there's a certain kind of, and particularly when we didn't bring the faith aspect into it, when I would talk to many of the, and I'll just say it, many of the white evangelicals throughout, they would constantly hold on to that this is created by God, not realizing that these were man-made uh, situations. So but they did it because many of the people in their congregations were owning these companies. <laughs> so when they owned the companies, it was profit over people. I think they followed the dollar in terms of even placing toxic waste dumps because of the land, where they could get the land at a certain amount, and those kinds of laws that were passed. And so you, you, when you put those two things together, the, the profit motive, it, it's a lot of times will override uh, the, the, the racist thing. I mean, the cotton plantations was around money. So when you really go back and look at the, it has not changed over the years. That's why now we've got to look at the, the human life and what it really means in terms of, uh, of just going after the dollar. So it's they, those fossil fuel refineries, plants are placed in places where the land is cheaper, the people have less power to, to, uh, to fight back, to, 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 to fight about as far as legislation is concerned. Plus you understand that many times people have said, why aren't people of color, particularly in the African-American community and Latino community, why aren't they more involved? But you have to understand one thing. People move from a psychological point of survival. And when you've got police brutality, when you've got rent, when you've got educate, poor education, when you've got unemployment, those issues that are very bread and butter issues, it's not a matter of people are not concerned about the environment. They've got other 
pressing issues. And so as long as you can keep that in front of people, you can do the land, you can put different kinds of programs around them, just don't know. And I think that's just why this is so important now. I know in 40 states, Interfaith Power and Light is really trying to work with the base of people to bring them to a level of understanding what is actually going on. I had no idea about this eight years ago, and I consider myself fairly knowledgeable. But I had highly no educated idea. man, but the climate was not on your radar. It was, it was not on my radar. A lady, she came up to me and said, this is very important. And I didn't pay any attention to her, <laughs> but she, she, she joined the church. And so I started listening to her. Her name. Was, <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, she said, I want to introduce you to my husband. Her name was Jane Fonda. Mm. <laughs> her husband was Ted Turner. So I said, you've got my ear. But, <laughs> but it wasn't about polar bears so much as it, maybe I could get a grant from these people. <laughs> follow the money, right? Yeah, yeah. follow the money. <laughs> but then as I began to get in and look at the devastation, and particularly those that I was called to serve, I began to understand uh, the importance of what it is that we have to do. Then I began to see that there's no incongruence between faith and science and begin to connect the dots and allow people, because people, when they find out that this is a disparaging situation, they will make the appropriate decision. So I got tired of so many major white groups talking about minorities rather than talking with minorities and finding out what's going on in the rivers areas of North Carolina, South Carolina, when Sally and I went down in after Katrina to, with Jim Wallace and to look at those issues. Then it became, then we've got to have that coordinating kind of understanding as to why we go. So is a deliberate effort to say we're going to just uh, disenfranchised people of color in these areas. I, I don't think that so much as, as it's evolved from following the dollar. Let's pick up on that mystic. I mean, environmental organizations know they have a, a diversity problem. They try. Um, wh where do they fall short? Do they, do they not listen enough? Why, why, why is it so hard to bridge that, that gap? I think on the most basic level, it's about who deems certain kind of knowledge worthy right? And who deems the, the sanctity, the quality, the purpose of, of lives differently? And so it's one thing as a, 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 you know, a primarily white, you know, environmental justice organizations to try to come to communities of color and show up and say, well, we have things to tell you, right? Mm. And, and, and we have all the answers for you. And these are what the solutions are without ever taking the opportunities to say, how is this impacting you and your family and your community? Mm -hmm. What would you like to see the solutions be? And to start to talk about not just that we in communities of color need for the policy to change, but that we also need to be engaged. There's a lot of money in climate change mitigation, right? And adaptation as we create more renewable energy sources you know, how about in communities that are most deeply impacted, that there's educational programs to train people to build solar panels, to install solar panels, to really be engaged. And so I think it can be very well-meaning. But when you think about structural hierarchies, and if the perception is that white folks are the leader within this movement and have that higher level of power, and you don't help lift people up, right? Not speak on behalf of people mm -hmm. or for people, but bring them to the table to speak for themselves, to shape what the conversation is. And not just the conversation, but what those solutions are that need to come. So I think that there has been a lot of outreach, but I think the failure is also like, 
you come to tell us things. You don't come to, to ask us how we're organizing or what we want to do or what we want to see and what we want the future to be. When I met you, boy, you was the sweetest thing, like a Sade tape in the coldest rain. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about civil rights and climate change. Coming up, we'll hear how faith and scripture can motivate people to protect the climate. From our particular faith, we see that God created a perfectly balanced ecological world where plants and animals and bees could come together, and he took the human to work with that, to be the stewards of that. But now we as human beings, we're treating the planet like a rental car. That's up next when Climate One continues. We're talking about climate change and civil rights at Climate One with Reverend Gerald Durley, pastor emeritus of Providence Missionary Baptist Church of Atlanta, hip-hop artist and activist Mystic, and Ingrid Brostrom, Assistant Director of the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment. I'm Greg Dalton. As in the civil rights movement, some in the climate movement are looking to the courts to do things that the federal government has not. I asked Ingrid Brostrom to tell us what's happening in the courts on climate. Well, the courts have not been friendly thus far. I mean, there is a mm. series of cases um, you know, basically trying to hold companies liable for, for the climate change that they were causing and actual damage to communities. Um, and, and they all failed. Um, the courts were basically punting and putting it back on the federal government and saying, this is who's going to regulate these climate pollutants, not, not us. Um, so we've had a series of failures on that front. Um, but there is a um, renewed energy and focus on a different type of litigation, and that's really recognizing that governments in general hold natural resources in trust. And the atmosphere can be seen as a natural resource that's very important for our future generations and the ability of them to, to live. Mm. Um, and so we've actually seen some progress um, in this new legal theory, and um, I believe next year there will be more litigation on that front. Um, there are right now in the world over 700 different climate cases. Um, the US is the home of the vast majority of those cases. Um, and so definitely litigators, um, both here and internationally, are trying to figure out different legal theories um, that we can test in the courts. And we'll see what happens. Um, me personally, um, I haven't had a great deal of faith in the court system divorced from other political and organizing avenues. My organization in particular, we organize. Um, is the biggest part of what we do is we organize communities and we do policy work and we also litigate. But the court system itself is designed to remove issues from the hands of the communities that are impacted and putting it on elite attorneys and their different legal theories. And so when the environmental justice communities, the communities of color that are so impacted um, by climate and by toxicities, um, when we asked for support to make sure that we did not allow pollution trading, it fell on deaf ears. Yeah. So, I mean, it continues to be a, a pretty big divide and not 
I don't think, the, the way we're actually going to solve our problems. So it really does have to be, um, we have to be getting more voters. We need to be changing the decision makers. We need to be organizing the residents. We need to be changing the laws in Sacramento and Washington. And let's have a court case. Um, so that's where I think we're going to get those victories, and it's not going to be the courts by themselves. So, so explain what pollution trading is and why it's uh, so controversial uh, among certain communities. Yeah, I mean, pollution trading is what it sounds like. It, it really is the ability to buy and sell pollution rather than reducing it at the source. And why it's so important for environmental justice communities and communities of color um, is if you look at carbon in isolation, then perhaps it doesn't matter where the reductions are happening. But when you recognize that carbon is never emitted by itself, it always uh, is emitted at, alongside very toxic air pollution that directly impacts people living next door, then instead of reducing the pollution on site and instead you buy it from somewhere else, then location really matters. You're not getting the pollution reductions that these communities uh, really need uh, right now. They're they're being impacted on, on a daily basis. So that's for a U.S. power company, for example, can save some trees in Brazil, but still keep polluting in Mississippi or Alabama or Louisiana, et cetera. So they can clean up somewhere far away Correct. and still be dirty at home because it's cheaper uh, to do that. Mystic, you're working on a voter registration, voter engagement yeah. with, with a, the Hip Hop Caucus. During the 2016 election, 60% of eligible voters in this country voted. That's up a little bit from 59% in 2012, down a little bit from 2008 when the exuberance of uh, Barack Obama drove a lot of people to the right. polls. Why don't more people vote? What, what could be done to get more people engaged out to vote? If they don't think it matters, that last election ought to show that elections matter. I think on the most basic level, it's frustrating when you vote and you don't get what you voted for, right? Or you vote, but then the election is stolen, right? And I'm a little bit older, so I'm like, I, I voted in elections where that's not how it was supposed to turn out. That there was so much kind of a systemic approach to excluding people from being able to vote because they had been incarcerated or you know, whatever it may have been, removing people from roles. And so I think there's the frustration there, but when we talk about bringing more folks to the table to vote, and especially at the caucus, we're very interested in, in, in civic engagement among young people, right? Um, as somebody who advocates for children and works with children and youth, like I firmly believe that children and youth are our leaders, right? And you think locally, too, is a better place. If you're disaffected with national, go local. Absolutely, absolutely vote there it matters. local. And we're nonpartisan at the Hip Hop Caucus. So we're not about telling you who to vote for or what to vote for. It's about get the knowledge, understand who the people are who are running for these positions and what that impact is on your community who funds them. And so in that sense, what's happening locally, like your school board, you know, and your attorneys, but then of course your mayor and your governor, maybe voting for the president doesn't seem like it has the largest impact. Although I believe after this current administration that there is no way that we are going to be able to go back. I mean, I would hope that we will not go back to a, a point in a position where we say it does not matter to vote, but it's like, let's engage more young people to push that through, to lead it, and let's force people who are currently in power 
who we've put in those positions to actually do what they said they were going to do. Hold to them, trans yeah, to hold, hold them, them accountable. accountable. And to trans help transform communities driven by community solutions. Reverend Durley, you know some people who voted for Barack Obama who thought he was going to change things, but he didn't. I think he changed a lot of things. That's indicative of why somebody's trying to change things back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. He must have right. changed something. If you have to, you have to change it back. He must have changed something. <laughs> right. He's know, certainly trying. If you want to try to make it great again, it was never great for me. <laughs> certainly trying uh, very hard to. Yeah. We're talking about climate change and civil rights with Reverend Gerald Durley from Interfaith Power and Light and the hip hop activist and artist uh, Mystic, as well as Ingrid Brostrom for the Center for Race, Poverty, and the Environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Reverend Drew, I'd like to ask you about scripture. You work a lot with people from different religious traditions, and a lot of times you talk with the evangelicals and others, and some people point to Genesis, which says, be fruitful and multiply, and that humans should fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky. Yeah. You're talking about Genesis, the second chapter, uh, the book of Genesis, and, and, and even when you look into the Jewish, the Talmud, and the, the, uh, the Torah, they all have opening beginnings of creation. And uh, when you look at the, uh, even in the, uh, the Jewish literature, it talks about the stewardship and the beginning. The, the book Genesis means in the, the book of beginning. So consequently, from our particular faith, we see that God created a perfectly balanced ecological world where plants and animals and bees could come together, and he took the human kind to work with that, to be the stewards of that. But now we as human beings, we're treating the planet like a rental car. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we take it for granted. You know, it, it's something that we, 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 we take that privileged mentality. So we've got to go back and look what we've done. Because of our own greed over profit and greed of profit over people, We've thrown that balance off, and that's just what we see when the oceans warm up, when the acidity of the oceans are so intense, when sharks don't even know which way to swim, when salmon are not swimming upstream. We have done that, but we can come back and justify it and say, well, maybe this is what God is doing. But God says, I will give it to you. Take care of it. You'll have clean water, pristine water. You'll have clean air. The birds, you'll have enough to eat. The Indians understood that the Native Americans, in terms when they were hunting, they kept a balance. But we now, we've moved far beyond that. So the scriptures on all of what this uh, 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 Islamic faith or the Jewish faith speaks to that effect. And there are n a number of scriptures. And even in the Christian tradition, we have what we call the Green Bible now, <laughs> where it, it demonstrates throughout the Bible where God speaks to the point of the mountains and the trees and the babbling brooks and what we're to do. But we've become an inane to that and closed our ears to that and gone our own ways. And now we're suffering. There's always a consequence when you break a rule. He gave us a rule to follow. And, uh, and, uh, and, and it's the same thing in science. If you break a scientific rule, you'll pay the consequences. If you stick a fork into an electric socket, <laughs> it doesn't turn out so well. No. Yeah. And the same thing with this. It, we're breaking certain inalienable uh, rights that have been, been given to us to do, and we've abdicated our responsibility to, to take care of what was uh, given to us to take care of. You also work with this interfaith group that uh, deals with congregations, mosques. Uh, there's not many areas where you know, Christians and Muslims get along or agree these days, but climate is one of them. One of those issues. In fact, when we were in uh, Turkey not too long ago, Imam Pliman Alamin in the Blue Mosque, he was teaching from, from the uh, Quran, 
about climate change. And uh, mm -hmm. Rabbi Ron Siegel from Atlanta, from the temple there, he and Peter Berg were teaching from the Quran. And then in Ephesus, I taught from the New Testament perspective. And it's interesting, when we came back out of those three groups and we got on a bus and people asked, well, who are you all? We said we're an interfaith group. And some of the people that said, riding on the same bus? <laughs> 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 we've got to get away from riding on the same bus as being shocking and ride on the same bus because we've got common goals in this. Uh, Mystic, I'd like to ask you about, um, Reverend Durley said earlier that mm. climate is seen as something abstract and far away. Music traditionally has played a very powerful role in, in movements, you know, anthems, et cetera. How, tell us how you're trying to connect your music, your hip-hop music, with getting people to get out and vote, care about climate, to reach them in a way, as Reverend Durley says, in the gut, rather than parts per million, which is kind of abstract science. Yeah. Right. I mean, music is unifying, right? It's not even just that hip-hop is unifying, but hip-hop is, is unifying around the world. And sometimes it's not explicitly saying it in the art, but it's the fact that through your art, you're helping to facilitate the space where people come together and they're mm. exchanging. Mm. And then you can use your platform to kind of facilitate a conversation. As an artist, I'm not somebody who believes that like when I get up on stage to perform that I'm talking at you, right? As far as I'm concerned, it's an exchange. You're not I can't do it yeah. without, <laughs> you know, I can't do it without you. And it's an exchange of, of energy that happens. But so... Through that music, look, if you can get young folks to come out, if you can get communities to come out, you can disseminate all kind of information. You can facilitate all kinds of conversations with the folks who, who, who come out. And so, but at the caucus, like really bringing artists to some of them may have a much, you know, larger kind of level of success than I've had, if it's somebody like TI or what have you. But when they start to use those platforms to talk about climate change and to talk about why they personally started to, to believe that it was important and that we needed to look at it, but also not separating that from like why we need to look at police brutality and why we need to look at broader systemic inequalities and other areas of social justice that that young folks gravitate to that and they also see somebody who looks like them, right? Most hip hop artists, we are artists of color. That has changed over time and there are some more white artists, but it's like you see somebody who looks like you, who comes from your community, who again is not using that parts per billion, although I found that young people are very interested in that kind of information. Mm -hmm. As an educator, it's like when you put that there and they start to look at it, mm -hmm. you can tell the difference in those numbers. It's not so abstract that they can't connect to it. So yeah, the music brings the folks together and then the message spreads. But I think art is crucial in any, in any movement, right? I think that art, like I, you can't have a revolution without art. You can't have a change without art. When we start to quash art, when we start to quash the role of, of, of artists using their platform and their voices to advocate and to amplify voices in the community, like when we start to quash it, we have a problem, right? I think that we're, we're, we're turning into a society that we don't, we never envisioned our society becoming, but if we remain quiet, then those are the things that's, that, that start to happen. So I'm like, the more artists, the better and the merrier, and a hip hop artist can get on a record and like say something that maybe people in this room or people listening on the podcast may not necessarily support, but if you have a conversation and you sit down 
with them, you will find that people that you have these perceptions about are some of the, the brightest folks that you have talked to. And again, have these beautiful, powerful ideas. And so, yeah, art, art and change. I mean, when have they not been connected? As somebody who studied anthropology, when we look back and start to look at the reflections of what was happening within society and changes, we can see it. And so art has always reflected that. And as we've recorded audio, I mean, it's like, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll close up here, but as long as people, have been, excited, a, a, as long as people <laughs> have been oppressed, people have been resisting. And as long as we have been challenging, artists have been using our platforms and our art to contribute to that change and to pursue justice. I just want to say in the faith community, we call that uh, response, you know, call and response. When we're trying to call mm. in response. And when you're moving people, you say, now you know what I'm talking about, amen, somebody. Right, amen. Yeah, see, see, that's a response. <laughs> you reach down because we're interacting. Do you believe what I'm saying makes a lot of sense? I think somebody agrees with me. Am I right about it? <laughs> you see that, that's call and response. And that's in the, in the musical world, but in the faith world, when we're sitting there, can you imagine selling heaven and nobody knows where it is? <laughs> <laughs> but we sell it and it gets down into the gut, into the mind, into the spirit. Then you get people that hook into it. And Dr. King said once we were in Chicago and some, uh, I forgot, in uh, 60, 66 or 67, and some, some uh, reporters had stopped him to talk, to ask him some questions in Cicero, Illinois. And we were excited. We, we had caught the, the momentum of the movement, and we kept marching. And Dr. King said something that's always stayed with me when I think about movement development. He said, I cannot answer any more of your questions. I've got to go catch my people. Mm. If we're not catching our people, we don't have a movement. So we've got to put it so they're, they're, they're moving ahead, whether we uh, uh, get stifled, get stopped, or maybe we're just tired and we quit. That's the key. That's why that young mayor excited me. He's caught the movement, and he's moving ahead of many of us. And that's, it's call and response, and, and you watch your audience, and you pull at somebody sitting there, the person sitting there with those glasses. Are you with me tonight? You see, look at that. <laughs> that's, and that's how you get, and then pretty soon they take ownership. Right. They take ownership. The environmentalists, the conservationists cannot keep this in their own little bailiwick, their own little silo. This is, it, this is, is big. But if yeah. I don't believe I'm a part of it, it's just another passing fancy. And we'll change in another few years, this will pass by. But we've got a critical nexus moment. This is a Kairos moment to pull all of that together. And I guess that's what excites me at this point. Now is the moment, now is the moment come on. We put it off long enough. You're listening to a conversation about civil rights and environmental justice. This is Climate One. Coming up, fractious support for building a more equitable and clean economy. There is a tremendous amount of differences of opinion in and amongst the environmental justice movement. Um, and so until we get on the same page, recognizing the magnitude of the problem, it's going to be hard to move forward. That's up next when Climate One continues. Listening to Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about civil rights and environmental justice with Reverend Gerald Durley, Pastor Emeritus of Providence Missionary Baptist Church of Atlanta. 
hip-hop artist and activist Mystic, and Ingrid Brostrom, assistant director of the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment. Time now for the lightning round, true-false questions, word association, and some surprising responses from our guests. Mystic, true or false, hip-hop has a misogyny problem. True. Reverend Durley, environment is not a relevant term to many Americans. True. Ingrid Brostrom, environmental justice advocates sometimes obstruct progress by making the perfect the enemy of the good. False. (laughs) Also for Ingrid Brostrom, some environmental groups help corporations greenwash. I hope not. Reverend Durley, true or false, conservationists are often smart and dull as dirt. Oh, you had my quote. <laughs> I got that from you, yeah. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. <laughs> I, met a, I stole it, but you can have it back. Okay, yeah. uh, thank you, thank you. No, uh, yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> they, they, you go to these meetings after meetings, and at the end of the meeting, they decide where they're going to meet again and, uh, <laughs> and discuss the same thing. You can't educate anyone in here about climate change and fracking and, and uh, oceans and all this, but it's dull. And they're competing with the housewives of America. And that's a tough act to follow. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to mention the association part of our lightning round here at Climate One. I'm going to mention a phrase or a noun, and you'll mention the first thing that comes to your mind. Mystic, taking a knee. Tired of dying by being killed and fighting for justice. Ingrid Brostrom, polar bears. (laughs) Important, but so are people. Mystic, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Si se puede, right? Like, yes, yes, yes. But I'm an educator, right? So I'm one of those, let's do yes. Create your environments for yes. Reverend Durley, Tesla. Wave of the future. Mm. Mystic, Flint, Michigan. Black children matter, and Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water without lead. And neither do some schools in Oakland, California. Ingrid Brostrom, uh, fracking. Uh, It's a dying industry that's still doing a lot of harm. Mm. Last one, Reverend Durley, Donald Trump. A catalyst who will make America look at itself. Mm. Let's give them a round for getting through that. Um, one of the best Donald Trump answers. I've ever right? <laughs> it is. It is. Um, Mystic, let's talk about uh, job creation. Green jobs have been out there for, for, for quite a while. Uh, they haven't quite materialized to the extent that many people hoped when right. Van Jones first coined this term. Maybe first I heard it 10 years ago. Um, so is there wealth creation opportunity happening or has that kind of been a, an elusive, um, elusive goal? In some ways, I think it has been an elusive goal thus far, right. right? But I think that part of the path forward mandates that that must be a, a, a part of the approach moving forward. You can't come to our communities and ask us to help solve a solution when other people are benefiting and not provide avenues where it's not asking for a handout, right? It's saying we are part of the solution. We, too, deserve to be part of this process and this solution. Reverend Durley, you go to a lot of historically black colleges. Uh, what do you say to young people who are charting their career, how to be part of this transition? Yeah, I've had to shift. You know, I was dean of 
two universities before, Moral School of Medicine and Clark there in Atlanta. And with uh, the Hip Hop Caucus traveled to 10 of the historically black colleges and universities. And we're telling them now, look at environmental engineering. Don't talk about, we, hopefully I can come up one day and put up solar panels and build windmills. Own the company. Mm-hmm. Put up, uh, investing in the company. These are the kinds of things. This is what makes this country move. So getting a new level of mentality. Now that's going to mean a new level of higher education to mm. get into that. So then we've got to break down working with educators to understand that as we open the doors of opportunity to educate people so that they will be ready for this new influx of jobs. Otherwise, it will be the same old, same old. A lot of people didn't get on the computer train early and they lost out to technology. The coal miners, they didn't get on it. So now the coal mines will never come back again. So now they've got to reboot themselves in another way. And I think that that's, that's when the jobs really manifest themselves in reality. Reverend Durley, a lot of environmental activism targets oil and fossil fuel companies as the villains, and yet they sell a product that we all burn and use for our, our lifestyles. Everybody listening to this today used fossil fuels today. Are we complicit in this, or is it simply that fossil fuel companies are evil and we've been uh, passive victims of this? Well, certainly as long as we continue to, to burn fossil fuel and all this, we are complicit. But the companies are going to do what they think that they can get away with to make money. I never thought growing up with an outdoor toilet and poor, the oldest of eight, I said, when I finally made enough money, I was going to buy me a decent car. And I didn't care what it meant. And I made enough money and I bought me an S550 Mercedes. And I said, now look at me, I finally made it. And then I started thinking about the environment and polluting all this. Now I drive a hybrid. Mm. Now, the companies now moving toward automated cars, uh, uh, autonomous driving cars. Mm. They're moving toward more electric cars. Mm. So when we used to do a thing called boycott, if they don't do it, let's not buy from that product. So I think when the, when the public starts saying, we're not going to buy those large automobiles, we're not going to do this, then I think that uh, uh, we'll find the, uh, the, the industry beginning to cut back on many of the atrocities that they've placed upon us. But as long as we continue to be, you use the term complicit, why should they change? We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Daisy Pestiline. Um, question for Ingrid, but others feel free to pipe in. Um, many people's analysis of the failure to really achieve strong climate protections would be that the environmental movement just doesn't know how to get and take power. Um, and I've heard and seen among both the activist community and the funding community in the last maybe five years more concern about this and trying to figure out how we build infrastructure to actually support the movement. What would you say are some of the pieces that are missing right now that we need to actually be a powerful movement that can exert political influence and win? I mean, I think the, the, the first piece is alignment. Um, there there is a tremendous amount of differences of opinion in and amongst the environmental movement and the environmental justice movement. Um, and so uh, until we get on the same page, recognizing the magnitude of the problem, it's going to be hard to move forward. Um, I think another criticism uh, of the um, more the mainstream environmental movement is its focus on litigation rather than power building. Um, you know, the environmental movement helped create the laws that we rely on today, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Um, and it was designed uh, to be more of an elitist movement with the ability to 
to understand these laws, um, exclude real broad public participation, but then the ability to go to court. Um, and so we need to kind of dismantle that and recognize absolutely that until we change the power dynamics that have led to this situation we are in today, we're not gonna win. Mm. Um, and that's why you know, a lot of the environmental justice organizations focus very locally on building power as one of the very key things that we do. Um, and that, uh, you know, power is that change. And so, uh, yes, I, I, I definitely think um, that we need to move to more organizing, more voter drives, um, more policy work, and definitely that alignment piece. Next question, welcome. Reverend Durley, we often think of climate change as an economic issue and a public health issue, but it seems like we don't pay enough attention to the mental health aspect of it um, as we deal with more devastating you know, fires and natural disasters, um, loss of life, property, jobs. Um, it's hard for communities to cope with that. Are there any lessons from your training as a psychologist and also as a reverend, as a pastor, um, in how we can make sure that our communities are resilient and can cope with the mental health stressors of climate change? It is a mental... Uh when I went to Ferguson, Illinois, and went out after the shootings had taken place and several other shootings, and the environment, so we, ha we combine two kinds of environment. One is just the racist kind of environment in terms of education, in terms of unemployment, those kinds of things. And then if you take anybody, anyone in this room, and you put them into a confined area, and the temperature, I often say, where in, during the winter we heat the outside, and during the summer, we cool the outside because of the, in the houses are not insulated. And so you've got a, a people that's, that's like that. So we have to deal with the psychological kinds of pressures, the mental pressures that, that occur. So when we talk about uh, what this really means to you in terms of, of, uh, of depression, which leads towards the suicide, when we talk about the gap between the images that are being portrayed and the reality of what we face, from a psychological, mental aspect, that's what we have to deal with. And then deal with the loss. Like when I was over there in Burke County a, a few weeks ago, they said to me, we, so a few children are born deformed, so a few people die, at least we're working. So I had to look at what does that mean? And so some of them turned on me because I was, so I had to sit back and say, that's right, you do have jobs, but at what age? at what is the expense of your doing that. So then we had to look at what do I give up? Do I give up making s some money here or do I give up the well-being of this community? And we work with this company to make it whole. Mm. Next question, welcome. Hi, uh, my name is Mary and my question is for all three of you. Um, the connection between the environment and social justice isn't apparent to all people. So what has been uh, a challenge that you have encountered in communicating the connection between sustainability and social justice, and how did you overcome it? Reverend Durley, have you encountered people in the South or other elsewhere who just say, I don't, they don't get the connection? Between? Sustainability and, and other social justice issues, whether it's incarceration or uh, whatever it might no, be. No, I, I, I don't think, I don't, I, I, and the reason is that the connection is not made because when you're involved with five or six other priorities, you don't make the connection between mm -hmm. climate. Climate is just, it's warm out here today or there's there torrential rains, but it doesn't connect to uh, poor education. It doesn't connect. So those, and that's what we're doing now, as I said, or organizing, organizing. I remember when in, in 1960, many black people said, 
Why are we fighting to vote? It, we, we can make it. We've got our own businesses. They didn't realize that that was a constitutional right that had already been there. Mm-hmm. When we talk about affirmative action on all the fear, we've got to understand that affirmative action was really uh, laws that had already been on the books. And a congressman got up one day and said, let's affirm those actions. Mm-hmm. Let's do what was right. So consequently, when people don't know, uh, ignorance breeds fear. And fear breeds a kind of constipation of action. <laughs> so, cons- so right now you've got people that are saying, well, maybe, maybe not. But when we can bring them to a level of awareness, I don't care how poor a family might be or how destitute, when they hear justice issues, when they know this is just not right and they get it, then, then they are, uh, become a part of how do we bring forth this change. And I think we're getting to that point now in America and uh, where people are beginning to realize that now this is really destroying us mentally, physically, financially, every kind of way. And I think, and I'm pleased that this is, it's coming to that point. I mean, I'm getting to that point now and I can articulate it even much more now because it's, it's, as as it's been said, climate change is not a hoax. (laughs) It's, it's real. And it's not real for the future, it's real for right now. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going to really generate the kind of gut feelings to make people rally around now. Uh, when we were in New York, 400,000 people in the street and what the women did after the election out in the street. That's what is starting to happen now. And I guess it's infectious now. Mm-hmm. We have to end, but I want to end by asking each of you quickly, what gives you hope? Ingrid, what gives you hope? Um, actually, it's the mayor of Arvin, uh, <laughs> Jose Garola. It's somebody that... Um, a lot of our groups helped support and, and, and got him elected in the, the, the reddest part of the state, the most conservative part of the state, the most oil-dominated part of the state, and we have an anti-fracking mayor, and that gives me hope. Mystic. Mm. Children and youth are my hope, my passion on the hardest day, whatever happens in the world, if I get to spend time with children, I am reminded of why we do this work why the work is necessary, why it is mandatory. And just like, especially when you're you're with the kindergartners and the first and the second graders, like, you know, they give you hugs and (laughs) they've just got these big eyes and and they think some things are just so hard about life, but it's like, because their friend didn't share their yogurt with them, right? (laughs) And so it just reminds me, they are my, they are my hope. Reverend Durley, what gives you? I guess my hope, I'm 75 years old now. And at my age, to, to think back in 1963, August the 28th, the front line when we were marching there in Washington, and we saw all colors, all faiths, and I see a sense of that occurring again now, 50-something years later, where people are coming together across faith lines, across racial lines, across sexual gender lines, across colors, and I see the young people with their level of social media they're much more open to discuss my grandson and the young people are, are doing this much more so that than, than we did. And I think that that gives me a lot of hope to see them, that they're open up. And the fear factor is not in them. I think that they will take the leadership to help those of us who are somewhat reticent in breaking down these barriers. And I think that that gives me hope. Reverend Gerald Durley, Pastor Emeritus of the Providence Missionary Baptist Church of Atlanta. We also heard from Mandolin Wind Ludlum, better known as the hip-hop artist and activist Mystic, and Ingrid Brostrom, 
Assistant Director of the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment. To hear all of our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.